We thank you that you love us. And I ask that you would have your hand upon us today, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Glad that you guys are here. I love the new fans. It's a nice little addition. Summer is here. Um, Hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Over the last several months, we've been slowly working through a book that documents the birth of the early church. And, And it wasn't perfect. It wasn't clean. It was messy in a lot of ways. There were people who were trying to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus. And in Acts 15, we see a pretty... Well, you know what? Before I get there, I just I feel like I feel compelled that I need to just acknowledge what's going on in our culture and in our country right now. Because the reality is there's a lot of hurting people. And there's been a lot of pain from the, the shootings in Orlando a couple weeks ago to, to the death of a couple of men at the hands of police officers and then the retaliatory shootings that have taken place on police officers. And the thing that saddens me, not, not just the fact that there are families that are hurting and that people have been ceaselessly killed, what truly, what, what grieves me on top of that is the way that it has begun to fracture our country and the ways that it has caused people to begin, rather than, rather than becoming colorblind and culture blind and accepting and embracing people for their differences, it has caused us to begin looking at people who are different from us and focusing on our differences and then beginning to fear those people and even speaking of them as evil. And that grieves me deeply. And this morning, I just think of Jesus' words on the night before he was arrested and killed for us. As he said to his disciples, guys, listen, in this world you're going to have trouble. Okay? This isn't going to go well. There's going to be persecution. And thankfully, because of the cross, he's overcome the world. And that's the hope that we have is that this brokenness and the evil that is being perpetuated, the anger and aggression, doesn't get the last word. But then he began to pray over his disciples. And one of the things he prayed for, you find this in John chapter 17, he began to pray that we would be unified. That we would be one. That we would stop pushing one another away because we're different. Because we speak differently. Because we look differently. Because we may have different cultural norms. And begin to embrace one another. And he said, in fact, not only do I want you to be unified, but the world will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And the amount of time I've spent on social media, uh, I've seen a whole lot more anger and vitriol than I have love. Now, to be, to be honest, there has, been some, there has been some kernels of wheat in the midst of the chaff, but there's a lot of emotional reaction. And it just grieves me. And so right now what I want to do for our, for our country and for us is to do the same thing that Jesus did, and that is simply to pray. So let's do that. Father, there is a time to grieve and a time to mourn and we join with those families who have lost people that they love and we grieve what is going on in our country. We grieve the way that anger and hatred and classism has caused us to look at one another as the enemy. And every single man, woman, and child that has been affected, every single person that has lost their life over these last several weeks, every single one of them was created in your image. And you love every single one of them. And we pray that you would have your hand upon the families and those who have been affected by these tragedies. And I ask, Father, that you 
would guide us through this? Would you give us wisdom to know how to respond in the midst of this? And I even ask that you would open your word today and you would speak to us through your word about how we might look at and interact with one another that are different from us. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. I, I don't think it's... Uh, coincidental as much as this is just we're, we're in Acts chapter 15 but I don't think it's coincidental that we find ourselves here this morning because even in the early church they were having issues with differences they were having issues with trying to figure out how do we interact with people that are different with us and how does the gospel translate into different cultures because here's the problem that the Jews were running into the Jews who accepted Jesus and had been waiting for their Messiah, right? To the Jews, Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Not all of them. Certainly many of them rejected Jesus as their Messiah, but there was a select group of them that began to go, you know what? The, the Messiah that all throughout the Old Testament has declaring, he's finally come. The, God's anointed Redeemer who was sent to earth to redeem God's people, he has come. His name is Jesus Christ, and we are going to follow him. But the Jews had a a perspective that percolated through everything that they did. They believed that they were God's chosen people. And because of that, they believed that they had a monopoly on Yahweh, upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believed that they had a monopoly on Jesus, that he was their Messiah and no one else's Messiah. And so they believed that these Gentiles whom God started to reach out to, God sent Peter to go and minister to a, a, a Roman centurion and his family. And the Holy Spirit in the midst of him sharing the gospel falls upon that guy and his family. All of them begin speaking in tongues, just like the early Christians did on the day of Pentecost. And, Paul, and, and Peter's going, you know, I believe that God is accepting the Gentiles and that this gospel is for them as well, that Jesus is a Messiah for them as well. And the Jews went, well, I guess we can't really argue with the fact that he's poured his spirit out on them. However, since Jesus is our Messiah, it only makes sense that if these Gentiles want to follow Jesus, then they've got to follow Judaism. They've got to submit to the law as well. And in fact, we see some well-meaning Jews show up in Antioch. Antioch is about 355 miles north of Jerusalem. It, is, it was the outpost that Paul and Barnabas used to begin doing their missionary journeys out into the northern uh, Mediterranean area. And some Jews from Jerusalem travel north up into Antioch to begin to share their belief that the Jews, or I'm sorry, that the Gentiles need to become Jewish before they beca- can become Christ followers. So let's read this in Acts chapter 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. Now, why do we say it came in, coming down? Because Jerusalem's built on a hill. So whenever you read in Scripture, people either go up to Jerusalem or you go down to anywhere else. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Why is circumcision so important? Because to them, it was like their baptism. It was a tangible, external declaration that they identified themselves as a Jew, that they submitted to the law of Moses, the law that God had given to the Israelites when he basically said, I'm taking you as my people. So unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, naturally, this conflicted 
with the gospel message that Paul and Barnabas had been sharing with the Gentiles, a gospel message that they were sure had everything to do with grace. For the Jewish Christians, they're saying you have to be circumcised, you have to obey the law. And and, and Paul and Barnabas are going, wait a minute! The gospel is and always has been a gospel of grace. In Galatians 2, he says, it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, not by works. So that nobody can beat their chest and say, look what I've done. I saved myself. I am a righteous human being. No. It's by grace we're saved. Through faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast. So naturally, Paul and Barnabas come into conflict with these Jewish Christians. Verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Why do they do this? Why do they travel 355 miles? Because these Jewish people were from Jerusalem. And, and it seems as if perhaps they are speaking for the church in Jerusalem. And this is no small matter because this is a question of salvation here. How am I saved? Can I be saved simply by accepting Jesus as my Lord? Or do I have to go through the rigmarole of becoming a Jew, getting circumcised, learning the law, and then and only then that I can follow Jesus? Do I have to follow the 600 and some odd rules that have been kind of laid out in the Old Testament, plus the 1,500 extra that have been added on by the Pharisees and the rabbis and the teachers in order to protect us from breaking those rules? I mean, where does it end? So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the believers to go up to Jerusalem and to find out what the apostles and the other teachers and elders in that church thought. Verse 3. The church sent them on their way and they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria. They told them how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all of the believers there very glad. So when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed to the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of these believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and began to kind of defend their perspective that you need to be circumcised. Interestingly, this is the one reference where we get where there were other Pharisees other than Paul who actually placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But the Pharisees were the keepers of the law, right? That was their job. They were the religious experts. They were the ones who taught people how to live in order to honor God. So it makes sense that they would be the ones kind of leading this fight for if, if, if these Gentiles want to become Christian, they got to become Jews first. So some of the, the Pharisees stood up and began to explain the Gentiles must be circumcised and they must be required to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders gathered together, together to consider this question. And after much discussion, so obviously there was a lot of talking going on, then Peter stands up. Peter, who was one of the, the first disciples, one of, the, one of Jesus' apostles, the guy who had been sent by God to Cornelius' house to share the gospel message with this guy that he otherwise probably never would have interacted with. Peter, who watched as the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and his family before he even finished sharing the gospel message, watched them speaking in tongues, and he goes, man, it, if, if God has baptized them with the Holy Spirit, then what's to keep us from baptizing them in water just as a, an external declaration that they believe? Peter stands up and he addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice amongst you 
that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on their necks, or by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Now, a yoke, for those of you who have ever worked with cattle, which I think is Ramsey in the back, is about the only person, a yoke is a big wooden thing that goes over the neck of two oxen. It ties them together so that they can work in tandem. A yoke was also used to describe teaching. If you were following a rabbi, his yoke was his teaching, and you would submit to it, and you were tied to that rabbi. So for Judaism as a whole, what he's referring to is the yoke is God's law, the, the law of Moses that was given to Israel to tie them to him. And he's saying, guys, you have sought through this yoke to earn your righteousness. You've turned this yoke of the law of Moses into a ladder that you try to climb by being good and following all the rules. And I got to tell you, it hasn't worked. None of us have been able to, to bear up under it. None of us have been able to live righteously through it. And I will tell you that because the law was never intended to be a ladder that we climb to righteousness. I've used this analogy before. I'll use it again. The law was, it was more like the, the x-ray machine at my dentist's office. I go and I sit down and the x-ray machine exposes the decay in my teeth so that I am willing to go and sit down in front of the dentist and allow him to drill and fill, right? The, the x-ray machine has no capability in and of itself to fix my teeth. It only can reveal, and that was the purpose of the law, not to fix our spiritual decay, but to reveal our spiritual decay so that it would push people into an intimate relationship with God and ultimately prepare them to grab hold of the Savior when he showed up. That was the purpose of the law. And, and right now, Peter looks at him and goes, guys, why are you trying to put on their backs a yoke that we could never have kept ourselves? Verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. In other words, those of us who are of Jewish descent, we're not saved by our obedience to the law. We're not saved by being righteous we're saved because of grace that's it because jesus died for us just as he died for them well the whole assembly became silent after he said that and then they listened to paul and barnabas as they stood up to share about what god had been doing and they told about the signs and wonders god had done amongst the gentiles through them why signs and wonders because it was a confirmation that god had been moving even with the gentiles and after they shared James, Jesus' half-brother, stood up to speak. Now, James is an interesting guy because James, during his lifetime, I'm sorry, during Jesus' life, was a bit resistant. In fact, one of the times that we see James, he and his brothers and his mom show up as Jesus is teaching one day, and they show up to take him home because he's a little whacked in the head, they think. We just want to take him home, put him in a nice padded room, give him some tapioca, and put him to bed. And now all of a sudden, after Jesus' resurrection, 
James became one of the most outspoken proponents for the gospel. He actually became a leader of the church, respected not only by Jewish Christians, but respected by non-believing Jews as well. He was zealous for obeying the law. He was known as old camel knees because of the amount of time he spent praying on his knees. This was a man who was righteous, at least in the eyes of the Judaism, based upon his lifestyle. So if anybody is going to stand up and, and defend what the Pharisees are suggesting, it would be James. They're probably fully expecting when he stands up for him to go, hold on, guys, they need to get circumcised. Hold on, guys, they need to become Jews. But listen to what James says. Verse 13, James spoke up and he said, brothers, listen to me. Simon Peter here has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet, prophets are in agreement with this, as is written. And then he quotes Amos chapter 11, pointing to the fact that even their Old Testament scriptures foretold of a day when the Gentiles would be allowed in. It's, he declares, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. David, the, king, the first king of Israel, or the second, I guess, um, you know, David's fallen tent is describing Israel as a whole. Its ruins will be, re be rebuilt and I will restore it. And the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things from long ago. So he says, even scripture declared that this day would come where the Gentiles would be ushered in. Therefore, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Who are we to stand in their way? Who are we to put obstacles in their way? Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted to idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times it is read in the synagogues and every Sabbath. And I read that and I go, what just happened? First sentence, we should not put any hindrance in the way of the Gentiles in coming to God. So here's all these things I want you guys to do. It totally feels contradictory in, in the midst of one sentence. You put a period and all of a sudden you're going a completely opposite direction. But let me explain what James is doing here because we could easily miss it. This is a difference between a prerequisite and a response. For the Jews, they're saying circumcision is a prerequisite to being saved. You must be circumcised. You must submit to the law of Moses before you can be saved. They made it a hoop to jump through. James is saying, no, 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 no. There are no prerequisites. It is by grace alone that we are saved. All we need to do is accept that gift and say thank you. End of story. But just as all of us know, there are natural responses to receiving a gift. Sometimes that response is a thank you note or at least smiling at the person and saying thank you. Sometimes when that gift is being invited into something we don't feel like we deserve, we start then submitting to and living differently. And I want us to understand what's going on inside of this culture because what's really happening is James is saying there is no problem. God is obviously weaving two very disparate groups of people together under the banner of Jesus Christ. They're different, 
and it's going to get messy. I think James understood innately what it took me watching my big fat Greek wedding to understand. And that is that when you take two very different groups of people and stick them together as a family, it gets messy, right? We, un- we naturally are going to step on people's toes. We're naturally going to offend people without even realizing it. And by our actions, if we're not careful, we can very easily tear the fabric of this newly formed family apart. And so James recognizes that these Gentiles are free in Christ, that they didn't have to do anything to earn it. However, God didn't just save them from their sins. He didn't just save them from the penalty, which is death. He also saved them to something. He saved them to relationship with him, he being their Lord, they submitting to him, and he saved them to relationship with one another, with their Jewish brothers and sisters. And herein was the rub. The Jews held themselves apart from the Gentiles intentionally because in their minds, the Gentiles did not submit to some of the Mosaic laws. The Jews had a a social policy that they didn't even eat with other Gentiles. Not because they didn't like them, but because the Gentiles didn't observe Jewish custom. They didn't observe um, kosher law. And because of that, to simply eat with a Gentile often felt like they they caused them to be unclean. And it hindered their worship of God. And so the Jews had a policy. We don't eat with Gentiles. And now all of a sudden, James and Peter and Paul and Barnabas are saying, eat with them. You guys are family. Well, how do we do this? And he looks at the Gentiles and goes, guys, there are no hoops you have to jump through. There are no expectations that you have to check off before you can come into the kingdom of God. However, now that you are in the kingdom of God, we want you to consider your Jewish brothers and sisters. We want you to recognize that when you eat food that has been sacrificed to idols, it is, it is an obscenity to the Jews. Blood is an important aspect. They, they recognize that the blood has the power of life in it. So for the Jews, they didn't touch anything with blood in it. They, they ceremonially slaughtered their animals to make sure all the blood came out. Don't eat any animals that have been strangled or haven't had the blood taken out because that would be disgusting to them and it will cause them to pull away from you. Furthermore, Gentiles, I know that you have been raised in this Hellenistic world where the human body is worshipped and that you are sexually just free to do anything you think. But guys, and this isn't the only place that, that sexuality, the, the, the word sexual immorality is porneia, from where we get pornography. It means any misuse of our sexuality, and it's spoken about lots of times in the New Testament, not just here, but specifically he looks at them and goes, guys, you're going to need to limit your freedoms for your brothers and sisters' sake so that you can be in communion with them. This is not a prerequisite. This is a natural response out of love for the people that you now get to call family. You don't have to turn here, but in in Romans chapter 14, one of my very favorite passages in all of Scripture, um, Peter, I'm sorry, not Peter, Paul talks about a, a very similar limiting of our freedoms out of love for other people. I'm not going to read all of it, just a couple of sections here. 
in chapter tw- or in verse 12 of chapter 14, he says, each of us, each of us is going to have to give an account of ourselves to God because at the end of the day, he is our Lord. We are following him. So we're all going to have to give an account to him. Therefore, let's stop passing judgment on one another. Let's stop sitting in judgment and pointing fingers and going sinner, sinner, sinner. Instead, Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. Even a hamburger with cheese on top of it, kind of pink in the middle, double-double, monster style, whatever. It's totally clean. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then that, for that person, it is unclean. Okay, so if somebody goes, I don't feel comfortable eating that, then to eat it actually would be sinning. Verse 15, if your brothers or sisters are distressed because of what you do, do then you're no longer acting in love. If something you're doing distresses your brother or sister and you continue to do it and you openly flaunt your freedom, you are no longer acting in love. So do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and a mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. It's not worth it. All food is clean. But it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or your sister to fall. Now, the food thing we don't really struggle with in this culture, but I'll tell you that alcohol is one of those things that we do. Is it sinful to drink? No, it's not. Obviously, anything in excess is. But it's not sinful to have a drink of wine, to have a beer, so long as you're 21, gentlemen. Okay? However, I've got a bunch of friends in here who I know struggle with alcoholism. I have, a fr- I have friends in this room that I can, I, can have a, I can have a beer or I can have a glass of wine and it stops there. It doesn't go on until I'm plastered. I've got friends in here who one drink is just going to lead to the second is going to lead to the third. And for me to openly just go, oh, I, I don't have this problem, so no problem, is not acting in love. So although I am free to have a drink of wine, when I recognize that I'm around somebody that struggles in it, I need to choose to limit my freedom. Does that make sense? That's the heart of what Paul's talking about. And that is the heart of what James is talking about when he's talking to these Gentiles. Listen, you get to come to Christ freely. It's by grace we're saved. But now you need to choose to limit your freedoms for the love of those in front of you. Let's move on because we are running out of time. James finishes, they all agree. They end up writing a letter to the Gentiles for Paul and Barnabas and a couple of other guys from, from Jerusalem to go and deliver. And it basically comes, says the very same thing. Hey, you're saved by grace alone. However, we would encourage you to avoid these things, you know, food sacrifice to idol, uh, you know, eating things with blood in it and sexual immorality. You would do well to avoid these things. Verse 30. 
So the men who were sent off and went down to Antioch, again, which is where Paul and Barnabas had been ministering, where they gathered the church together and they delivered the letter and they basically said, here's what we found. It is by grace you've been saved alone. That's it. The people read it and they were glad for it. It had an encouraging message. And Judas and Silas, these two guys that were sent from the church in Jerusalem to support Paul and Barnabas and saying, yep, we give our approval to this. They themselves were prophets and they had much to say to encourage and strengthen the believers. And after spending some time there, then they were sent off with the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. In other words, they went back to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Little time goes on. Paul and Barnabas start looking at one another going, you know, things are going well here, but I'd really love to go back and see all those Christians that we saw when we went and shared in, on, on the island of Cyprus and when we went up into the northern um, Mediterranean area from that first missionary journey. What do you think? Barnabas and Barnabas goes, yeah, let's head back and talk to them. However, Barnabas wanted to take John. I'm in verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark. You guys remember this guy, right? John Mark, he was Barnabas's cousin. He was the one that went along with them initially. But then about halfway through the missionary journey, he goes, peace out, guys, I got to go home. I'm not feeling it. And both Paul and Barnabas are like, seriously? Well, Barnabas is an encourager. Barnabas is all about giving people second chances. He's all about lifting people up and going, you can do this. So Barnabas goes, I want to give him another chance. Paul's younger than Barnabas. Paul's a little more hardline. He goes, no, 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 no. He already ditched us once. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So I'm done with him. Barnabas goes, I really feel we need to take him. And Paul goes, if you want to take him, that's fine. You go your way. I'll go this way. I'll take somebody else that I can trust. And we'll see, we'll we'll cover the territory twice as fast. And so that's what they do. And I read that and at first I go, man, that's disappointing, right? I mean, Paul, Barnabas, you guys are giants of the faith. What are you doing bickering like this? What I love about this picture, though, is it reminds us that even these guys that we romanticize as being perfect people weren't perfect at all. And they had conflict. They had things they had to work with. And I don't think that they necessarily worked through it all perfectly. But who was right? Paul or Barnabas? They probably both felt that they were in the right. But history tells us this. God used John Mark in some amazing ways. Not only was he Barnabas's partner in sharing the gospel to those places, but later on he became a partner to Peter in his ministry, traveled around with him. And ultimately, when Peter wanted to kind of share what he had seen of Jesus's life, it was John Mark who ended up writing him down for him. We know that as the gospel of Mark. Later on, even, Paul, as he was, several years later, Paul goes, you know what? I really need John Mark to come and help me in this particular thing. He's been a real help to me in my ministry. So even Paul ultimately reconciled with John Mark and there were options. So, so all that to say, our God is a God of second chances. And at times when we feel like we have been disqualified, an example of John Mark is a great reminder for us that God's not done with us yet. And he can use us in spite of, and sometimes because of our mistakes, he can use us and minister to us out of our brokenness. Last couple of verses before we finish. We're going to read just a little bit of chapter 16, just about three or four verses. Paul and Silas, who was traveling with them, came to Derbe and then to Lystra. Lystra was the place he got stoned. Remember that? Where he was left for dead? 
So Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and was a believer, but whose father was a Greek guy, a Gentile. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy, and Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. I read that and I go, Paul, are you crazy? Didn't we just spend an entire chapter focused on you arguing vehemently that that Gentiles shouldn't have to get circumcised? You traveled 355 miles to Jerusalem so you could argue that. And then on the heels of that, you meet some kid and you go, oh, let me circumcise you. What's going on? I want us to understand that this, again, is Paul being consistent. Rather, Even though on the surface it may feel inconsistent, it's actually him being utterly consistent with his value. To love people and reach them with the gospel. Because Paul was absolutely focused on not letting anything get in the way of sharing the gospel. Oh, you want to add on all of these writers to to the gospel message so that a Gentile has to jump through this hoop and this hoop and this hoop? Absolutely not, as by grace you're saved. End of story. But understand that Timothy is already a believer. This is not a matter of his salvation. Paul is inviting Timothy to go with him to be a minister in areas where there's a bunch of Jews who know he's a half Jew. His mother is Jewish. And and by their understanding, if he has not been circumcised, he's an apostate Jew. He's not a true Jew. He is basically sitting in sin to God. And so Paul goes, listen, I know this is probably not going to be very comfortable. I've never, you know, I don't want to think about that. It's not going to be very comfortable, but... I want you to be a witness to these men and women that we're going to interact with in these cities, many of whom are Jewish, and I want to remove every obstacle from the gospel being shared. So, I want you to get circumcised so that's not an issue anymore. This is more about him being able to share the gospel so that the gospel can be front and center and to remove all of the periphery arguments. Does that make sense? You don't have to turn here again, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm just going to read it from here. Doggone it. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, First Corinthians chapter 9. It's a good thing I'm going off of here or I would have been in the wrong address. This is Paul's attitude. This is Paul's posture. His entire ministry is, is out of this posture towards people. He says, although I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I've become like a Jew to win the Jews. That's why he has Timothy circumcised. To those who are under the law, I have become like one under the law, although I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. But to those not having the law, I became as one as though I didn't have the law, although I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. But I've come as somebody who doesn't have the law in order to win those not having the law to the weak. I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all by any means I might save some. That was Paul's heartbeat. The gospel is everything. But we have a tendency to convolute that, don't we? We have a tendency to fight tooth and nail over really ridiculous little details rather than focusing on the gospel message. And what is the gospel message? 
that we are all sinners. That nobody can stand up in front of God and say, I've done it right. I deserve you to accept me into heaven. We are all sinners. We have all fallen flat on our face. Nobody will be declared righteous by the things that we do. And none of us can earn our way into heaven. However, on the heels of that really encouraging message, we have the cross. God did for us what we could never do for ourselves by sending Jesus Christ to die for us so that we who are sinners can be declared saints. Saved sinners. And God redeems us from the pit that we find ourselves in, gives us the ability to come just as we are, and then even turns us back around to go back out into the very world that he called us to step out of to become his witnesses. Guys, We're not perfect people. I am not a perfect person. And I will be the first to say I am a pastor, not because I've got it all together, but because I'm the first one to say I am a sinner desperately in need of a Savior. I think we all are. And the message this morning is that God invites us into an adventure, not only of following Him, but to be His witness. What I love about the fact that we are one big messy family full of people from different backgrounds and different perspectives. What I love about this is that I can reach certain people because of my life and the circles that I run in, but I can't reach everybody. And God has called us to get to be witnesses in our spheres of influence. Each and every... I mean, how does God reach kids at Newport Harbor High School or kids over at Seagrestrom High School? He dresses some of his kids up as students and others up as teachers, and then he sends them into the school system. How does God reach guys in AA? He dresses some of his kids up as recovering alcoholics and sends them into AA to love people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does God reach people in Indonesia? Well, He calls some people to help translate the gospel for him, but he also calls some people out of Indonesia to become his followers and then to live their faith in front of their brothers and sisters. How does God reach people at Starbucks? With a cup that has a cross on it, right? No. He dresses some of his kids up as caffeine addicts and sends them to have coffee... And a conversation with a barista or something. I don't know. I mean, basically, we all have spheres of influence. And the invitation is to be a witness in your sphere of influence. End of story. May we make the gospel message the central message. May we stop bickering over ridiculous little things. And may we start exuding love for our brothers and sisters. There's plenty of hate out there already. We don't need to be purveyors of that hate. We need to choose to love our neighbor And by the way, we love one another. By the way, we move towards one another. They will see Jesus Christ. That's the invitation. That's what Paul and Barnabas were all about. Keep the main thing the main thing. So, Father God, I thank you that you use broken and cracked vessels like us to pour out your perfect love. And we admit that sometimes the gospel message we pour out tastes a little bit of the vessel. But Father, would you protect us from getting in the way? 
May you have your way in us. May this church be a place that trains people up to go and be witnesses in our world for your name's sake, not for our own name's sake. May your kingdom advance, not our own little kingdoms. May we submit our own little kingdoms and our own desires to have control and to be the captain of our own ships so that you can be glorified. And Father, if there are any of my brothers and sisters in here this morning who don't know you or have been trying to do it by obeying the law, trying to be really good, trying to earn the right to become your son and daughter, then, Father, would you just remind them this morning that we all stand on the same footing. It is by grace we are saved, through faith in you, not by anything that we can do or will do, so that you get all the glory. May we rest in your love for us. May we take hold of that gift you've given us and then be free in sharing that gift with other people. But in, in the future, in that day when your kingdom comes crashing into our reality and we get to see you face to face, there will be a whole lot of men and women that currently live nearby us but don't know you who will celebrate you as their father and their savior into eternity. That's our prayer. Jesus, in your name, amen. Amen. Gentlemen, I hope to see you paddleboarding tomorrow night. If you want to know some, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff on the back table. Um, and, and Marshalls, thank you.